Some people don't like the song that they wrote. I guess so. That's why we can do an episode. Seth and I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast, please do us a solid and go ahead and share it with friends. Also, if you rate and review it on whatever podcasting platform you listen, it will get to other people and that'd be good. We want more people to hear about this stuff that we think is so cool. So share, rate, review, and thank you. Hey Rockers, welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rock You Podcast. I'm your co-host, Seth Hinckley, sitting here with the ad rock to my Mike D, <laughs> Becky's husband. Happy belated birthday, Becky, Mr. Matt Black. How's it going, Matt? It's going well, Seth. How you doing? Doing all right. My over-under just went a notch up thanks to that intro. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of over-unders and mm. intros and other clues that we give. What are you wearing today? Today I'm wearing my Tom Petty t-shirt. I've actually got two. I'm actually not wearing the right one. That's another clue. I'm wearing the um, Damn the Torpedoes t-shirt rather than the Full Moon Fever t-shirt. Ah, Full okay. Moon Fever t-shirts right. in the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sporting my Beastie Boys t-shirt for this episode. It's a good look. Yeah. So uh, what are we doing today, man? We are sharing our top five songs that their creators hate. So this is songs that bands don't like anymore, they don't want to perform live, they want to disavow after a long time, could be a lot of stories. I found they mostly fell into the same main category, but basically bands that their creators hate. Okay. Oh, you mean songs, not bands. Uh, Right. Sorry. Songs that are hated by the bands or artists who created them. You could do some clever editing there. (laughs) I think I'm going to leave that in because it's fun. Do it. (laughs) So criteria? I've got a few. I didn't have anything special for this one. I thought it was pretty straightforward. I did find a funny parody article. Uh, I occasionally get these articles from a, a parody publication called The Hard Times. It's basically music news, but it's it's fake. The headline is, alt-rock band hoping for a big hit so they can whine about playing it. So <laughs> I kind of summed it up right there. I will stick there a link to go. that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I had a few, you? and yeah. I thought that uh, the fewer times that they played it live, the better. That that made that a song that we knew evidentiary-wise that they didn't like. Uh, extra points if they stopped playing it all together, and they made a vow to never play it again. <laughs> so that was my set of criteria. Okay, over-under. I think I'm going to set it at one and a half, and... Here's an aside. My wife's family plays this card game called Pooch, and it's kind of like spades. When you make your bids on how many tricks you're going to get in the game, I always figured that I was overestimating. So what I always do with that is I think about how many I think I'm going to get, and I always go one less than that. So uh, I'm going to use that lesson here and definitely take the under. I'm taking the over. I'm usually wrong when I do, but I know we've got one in common. I'm pretty sure we're going to have two or three, (laughs) at least two. There's no way that one of my other four is not also on your list. Okay. Why don't you go first? Sure. and, And I'll have the last word. Tell us what's on your list at number five. At number five, I could have worn my Nirvana t-shirt because my number five song is Smells Like Teen Spirit from 1991 by the guys from Seattle. So not on yours? 
Nope. Fair enough. Okay. Never mind. The album comes out in 1991, and on it is Smells Like Teen Spirit, which turns out to be one of the greatest and most influential songs of the 1990s and rock history in general. Changes the course of music for decades, puts grunge music on the map, makes Nirvana into a legendary rock band. We've talked a lot about Smells Like Teen Spirit. I don't remember what other list it's been on, but we've talked about how the name comes from a deodorant brand, that Kathleen Hannah from Bikini Kill was the one who wrote on Kurt Cobain's wall, Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's got a lot of distinctive sonic signatures of Nirvana. The combination of chorus and distortion is a Kurt Cobain trademark. Soft verses with the really loud driving choruses. This is another Nirvana trademark, which they didn't make up, but they certainly, you know, they used it it a lot. Exactly. Kurt Cobain himself said, I was trying to write the ultimate pop song. I was basically trying to rip off the Pixies. I have to admit it. When I heard the Pixies for the first time, I connected with that band so heavily that I should have been in that band or at least a Pixies cover band. We used their sense of dynamics, being soft and quiet and then loud and hard. Also, impossible to understand the lyrics. Someone's called it the Louie Louie of the 90s. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. Uh, rock and roll journalist Dave Marsh said, like Louie, only more so, Teen Spirit reveals its secrets reluctantly and then often incoherently. What I imagine was quite a bit better or at least more gratifying than what Nirvana actually sang. <laughs> Worst of all, I'm not sure that I know more <laughs> about the meaning of Smells Like Teen Spirit now than before I plunked down for the official version of the facts. And Kurt Cobain said the entire entire song is made up of contradictory ideas. It's just making fun of the thought of having a revolution, but it's a nice thought. But over time, he changed his explanation a little bit. Dave Grohl said that, quote, just seeing Kurt write the lyrics to a song five minutes before he first sings them, you just kind of find it a little hard to believe that the song has a lot to say about something. You need syllables yeah. to fill up the space, or you need something that rhymes. And Kurt Cobain was a genius at that. I've compared it before to John Lennon for like using the perfect nonsense lyrics to somehow express something that he has on his, in his mind. A hugely influential song. Not expected to be popular, but it was instantly popular. And Kurt Cobain said in 1994, I still like playing Teen Spirit, but it's almost an embarrassment to play it. Everybody is focused on that song so much. And then later he said, I can barely, especially on a bad night like tonight, get through Teen Spirit. I literally want to throw my guitar down and walk away. Novoselic said, if it wasn't for Teen Spirit, I don't know how Nevermind would have done. There are no Teen Spirits on In Utero, their other full-length album. I have seen live versions of the song where they're clearly trying to mess it up. (laughs) Just like... They know the audience is going to love it no matter what they do to it, so they just kind of try to sabotage themselves. You know, I can imagine what it must feel like to be captive to a great song like that, but hey, it's a great song. People came to hear your song, play the song, and with that, they did. It's on so many top whatever-you-want lists. It's only the second song from the 1990s to reach a billion streams on the Spotify platform, and it is one of the songs we've performed the most at Rock U. It is an undeniable classic, and yet Nirvana got sick of it. So that's my number five, Smells Like Teen Spirit. What's your number five? So my number five is Stairway to Heaven by a band that everybody's familiar with, Led Zeppelin. (laughs) The opening riff to this song has been famously banned from being played in guitar stores, (laughs) even if that's just an urban myth or just done as a joke. The band, finger air quotes, is most famously shown in the 92 film Wayne's World when Wayne starts to play the forbidden riff on his dream guitar. And the store clerk stops him and points to a sign that says, No Stairway to Heaven. And then Wayne looks directly into the camera and says, No Stairway. Denied. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the funny thing is, if you get that movie on video or you get it on streaming, I don't think that they actually use the Stairway to Heaven riff because they used it in the film and mm. then it would have cost them so much yeah. to use it on the DVD or the VHS tape or for the streaming, they use something different. So whenever you pull that up, you're probably not going to actually hear Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, Zeppelin doesn't like to share, despite the fact that they no. share plenty of other people's stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Well, they like to share other people's stuff, just not their own. Right. Robert Plant actually can't stand the song. There was a 1988 interview in the LA Times where he said, I'd break out into hives if I had to sing that song in every show. I wrote those lyrics and found that song to be of some importance and consequence in 1971, but 17 years later... I don't know. <laughs> Later on, he has called it that bloody wedding song. Oh, and God. allegedly, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's a story going around the internet that in 2002, he pledged a donation of $10,000 to Portland radio station KBOO if they promised to never play the song again. <laughs> That's and allegedly great. this happened while he was driving down, I think it was the PCH, and picked up this radio station and pulled over to call in and tell mm. them, I'll give you 10 grand if you never play it again. That's a great story. Yeah. The last time that Plant played Stairway to Heaven on stage, I think, was December 10th of 2007, when the surviving members of Led Zeppelin, himself, Jimmy Page, and John Paul Jones, with Jason Bonham on drums, reunited for a one-night-only set at a tribute concert to Amut Ertegen. Ertegen I yeah. think that's a, I think the that's producer. how you say his name. Yeah. And Plant has played a lot of shows since then, and has regularly played other Zeppelin classics, and has always left out Stairway. However, last year at a benefit concert organized by Andy Taylor of Duran Duran to benefit the Cancer Awareness Trust. Robert Plant, with Taylor on guitar, played Stairway for the first time in 16 years. Hmm. Maybe he was moved to play it to support the charity. Maybe it was because he won the lawsuit that we had talked about <laughs> numerous times on the show. Who knows? And who knows when he'll decide to perform it again. That's my number five, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Gotcha. What's your number four? My number four is kind of ironic because it's a song that I think uh, musicians love and love this band for being able to make a song like this and play it. And it's Africa yeah. by Toto. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Toto is definitely a musician's band. We've talked about this before, too. Totally. These guys were incredible musicians and great session players. And yet when they recorded themselves, the parts just came spontaneously. And that seems to yeah. be what happened with Africa. From 1982, from Toto 4, it's gained a lot of popularity recently, by the way. I'm not really sure why. I think it's probably multiple sources. But uh, it was Well, wait. Written... Do, who was the band that did the cover of Weezer. it? Went... Weezer did a cover. Weezer, yeah. Did a whole album of covers, including Africa. Yeah. Yeah. It was written by, uh, I don't know if it's Pache or Pake, David Pache, who I think is the, I want to say, does he play keys along with one of the Porcaro I brothers? Don't I don't even remember. But anyway, he's in the band. <laughs> it's been seen as a romantic song. He was actually writing about the continent. 
he watched the documentary on TV. He'd never been to Africa, yeah. but he thought it would be fun to write a, a song about it. And he went to Catholic school, so he liked the line, I bless the rains, uh, which reminded him of the missionary teachers he's had. Okay. Steve Lukather, the legendary guitarist from Africa, has said, I'm quoting him, run naked down Hollywood Boulevard if the song became a hit. Uh, <laughs> or he said it at the time. And Steve Porcaro and Steve and Lukather called the song, I'm quoting now, dumb, an experiment, goofy, with placeholder lyrics, including the line, as sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti, which it doesn't. Kilimanjaro is a way, you know, pretty far from the Serengeti. It's a way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. The band didn't love the song and they actually considered cutting it from the album, but they left it on there and obviously became a mega hit. The band members have a lot of ambivalence. David Page has mentioned in interviews that he found it ironic how a song about Africa became one of the band's biggest hits and there were moments where they felt their other work was so much better and so much more like them. They didn't feel it was really representative of who they were as a band. Look at there, said, sometimes he hates it, uh, having played it since 1982, and that's, like, I think he said that in something like 40 years later. The song yeah. is the third most streamed of the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the UK. In other words, uh, of songs from those three decades, it's the third most streamed in the UK behind Wonderwall and Bohemian Rhapsody. There is an wow. installation in the Namib Desert. Just in the middle of the desert, there are these speakers that just play Africa on loop. I don't know if you can go visit those <laughs> or, or watch them on a webcam. So it's a pretty significant song. Again, a pop culture phenomenon, but not one of the band's favorites. And I think most of my songs fall into the category of their creators feel trapped by the popularity of the song. Again, yeah. Cry Me a River, you got a hit song, be happy. But Africa by Toto <laughs> is my number four. What's your number four? My number four is by Radiohead. And I know everybody's going to be like, oh, it's Creep. Oh, nope. They hate one of their other songs more than they hate Creep. And That's here's why. The song is High and Dry, and huh. it was originally recorded in 93 for Pablo Honey, but it didn't make the cut. And Tom York reluctantly allowed the remastered track to appear on their album, The Benz. In a 96 Billboard interview, York said that the lyrics were about, quote, some loony girl I was going out with, end quote, but became mixed up with ideas about success and failure. He said he thought it sounded too much like a Rod Stewart song. I'm not sure how that yeah, would work. What? But, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And although Radiohead is infamous for refusing to play Creep in concert, they have brought Creep back into their set list on a few occasions, most notably on the tour for A Moon-Shaped Pool. Hmm. And according to Setlist FM, which is a great website if you want to see what was played at a show that you went to, according to Setlist FM, High and Dry has been off the Radiohead set list since their January 21st, 1998 show in and I'm probably going to butcher the name of this town, Fukuoka, Japan. York has famously said that this song is, quote, it's not bad, it's very bad. Wow. So because they have literally not played it since 1998, that's my number four, High and Dry by Radiohead. Well, there goes my over-under. <laughs> uh, did you think I was going to have creep? I thought it was a good chance you would, yeah. 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 Well, when I was doing the research for it, I was like, man, they've actually played creep, but they haven't played high and dry forever. Well, so I feel, I feel like we might be hearing more about creep pretty soon. So, <laughs> okay. All right. But not at my number three. Yeah, I was going to say, what's your number three? But I better be getting a bell for this one. My number three is Fight for Your Right by Beastie Boys. Ding! 
and double is. ding because it's my number three. Perfect. All right. Well, as we usually do, I'll say my stuff and then you clean up anything I missed. You mow right. the lawn and I'll do the, edging. the edges. Exactly. License to <laughs> Ill 1986, their first huge commercial success, one of their signature songs. It's a rebellious party anthem, super catchy with in your face lyrics, but it was meant as satire. They were trying to skewer what we now call bro culture. They didn't have the word back then, I don't think. I want to say it was written by definitely Adam Adam Yach and I think uh, the friend of the band, Tom Cushman, that's right. And they were trying to satirize hair metal, like smoking in the boys' room and I want to rock and other mid-80s, totally let's have fun and rock and all that other stuff. But everyone missed the joke. Now, I'm just going to say, I think that they're protesting a little too much. I listened to that song and their other stuff when it was first coming out on the radio. I don't think they were totally satirical. I think at least had a good solid foot in there, but that's another story. Mike D of Beastie Boys said, the only thing that upsets me is that we might have reinforced certain values of some people in our audience when our own values were actually totally different. And Adam Yacht said, he's MCA, so we decided to include this song because it sucks. He goes on to say it started off as a goof <laughs> and just became something that they, we'd set out to make fun of. All the sexist macho jerks in the world are just pretending because they're caught in a rut and maybe at some point in the future when the planets line up in a certain way they'll snap out of it. Now, Beastie Boys did later in their career, they did disavow a lot of their early music saying they were really sorry that they had put out a lot of misogynist messages out into the world. Yeah. So I'm not so sure they're being completely sincere about their disavowal of Fight for Your Right, but they're on record as saying it's not what they meant. They meant it to poke fun at those kind of people who thought it was serious and they didn't mean it seriously at all. When you want to add some stuff? Yeah. If you've seen the, I think it's called the BC Boys movie that's out on Apple Plus. The explanation that Mike D and Ad Rock give out is even if they had 100% made it as a joke, as a satire, which I'm in the same boat as you are, I yeah. don't think that that was 100% satire. Maybe they meant it a little bit as satire, mm -hmm. but they went out on tour for License to Ill. And that song had become the, the frat boy bro culture anthem. And by the end of the tour, they said they had become the guys that they were trying to make fun of when mm -hmm. they wrote the song. And they didn't like that at all. And then that kind of caused them to have their falling out with Def Jam and Russell Simmons. Hmm. That's what caused them to leave Def Jam and New York. They ended up out in California and met up with the Dust Brothers and got into really into sampling and recorded Paul's Boutique, hmm. which was a flop when it came yeah. out. But it's an amazing it's an record. It's an enduring record for sure. They played Fight for Your Right in shows in 1992 and 1994. But after the 1994 Lollapalooza tour, they never performed the song again. Yeah. So their last show was in 2009. So that was what, 15 years of never playing it. Cool. All right. Well, All at right. least I got one. <laughs> yeah, you got one. Let's see if you can get I two. I don't think so. Now I think I've showed all my cards. You ready for my number okay. two? Okay. Yeah. What's your number two? Well, my number two is my t-shirt. It's Free Fallen by Tom Petty. There you go. Oh, no, no ding. ding. Sorry. I'm, I'm done. It's Tom Toast. You win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Full Moon Fever came out in 1989, going back all the way to episode one, one of my top five all-killer, no-filler albums. Everyone loved Free Fallen. Everyone still loves Free Fallen. I just played Free Fallen at a gig the other night, as a matter of fact, and just for you uh, you, you musicians out there, it's just one chord. A lot of people play it as three, but really, it's just a Mixolydian mode where you're adding a suspended chord in the major chord. That's really all yeah. it is. When you play it, it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Not surprised that Tom Petty got bored of it and was always pressured. People always wanted him to play it live. 
He said in an interview in 2006, I've just played it enough. It just got played out. I've always wondered, I've never found this in print, but Full Moon Fever was not a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. It was a Tom Petty album. He made it with Jeff Lynne as producer, and he brought Mike Campbell. But his whole backup band was was the Heartbreakers. only Mike Campbell played on that. Maybe Ben Montez played on one or two, but the Heartbreakers didn't play, and I can only imagine it must have been kind of a source of, you know, some bad feelings. tension? Yeah, it's some tension at least. It's like, because people didn't really know the difference between Tom Petty and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers unless they were real fans. If you're a Heartbreaker, but you didn't play on Full Moon Fever, and you're on stage, and 50,000 people are begging you to play Free Fallen, and you didn't play on it. I've never seen that explanation in print. I don't know, but I can imagine that might have been part of it. Tom Petty is on record as saying he just got tired of it and didn't want to do it anymore. So my number two is Free Fallen by Tom Petty. Not the Heartbreakers, just Tom Petty. And one or two of the other Heartbreakers. Mike Campbell, for sure. I'll have to look up if there are any others playing on, but I don't think so. My number two is Diana by Brian Adams. And this (laughs) is probably going to be the one song on this list that the artist quit playing, not because he hated the song, but because she passed away. Hmm. This 1984 song was a tongue-in-cheek song in admiration of Lady Diana Spencer after she had gotten married to Prince Charles. The song was not included on Reckless because Adam was worried about offending the royal couple. Though it was later released as a B-side to the single Heaven, he said he was introduced to the princess on an airplane after he co-wrote and released the song. Adams recalled of that meeting, he said, I said, I used your name on a song once. And Diana said, yes, I know, very funny. Actually, I'd like to hear it again. So I sent a copy to Kensington Palace and got an invitation to tea back, and that's how we became friends. Adams has said that the lyrics were, quote, laddish humor, end quote, and that the original inspiration behind the song was from that guy who had broken into the queen's bedroom and sat on her bed smoking. (laughs) Evidently, that happened at some point in the 80s. I vaguely remember that, yeah. He played the song in concert for years, but he retired the song after she died out of respect for her and her boys. In an interview in 2018, when asked if he was ever romantically involved with Diana, he said that they were just good friends. I love this song. I've loved it since it came out. And, you know, you could only get it on a single, on a CD. I I don't know if you can find it on streaming. I don't think you can because he doesn't want it out there. He's not going to play it anymore, you know, in her memory. Hmm. I think you can find it on YouTube, which is where I found it to play it again. Probably the only place. So I doubt it'll be in the Spotify playlist. But that's my number two, Diana by Brian Adams. Cool. All right, man. Just What's before, your number one? Before my number one, I just wh- while you were talking about that, I went and looked up the Full Moon Fever question. Ben Montench okay. played on one song. Howie Epstein, the bass player for the Heartbreakers, did backup vocals only on two songs. And I'm quoting the Wikipedia article here. It says, Ben Montench and Howie Epstein initially were not happy about playing the Full Moon Fever songs live during Heartbreakers concerts. And Stan uh, Lynch, the drummer, hated them right up until his departure from the band, saying it made him feel like he was in a cover band. Only Mike Campbell is credited with playing on the album, except for those two guys on those one or two songs. So, but he did have such other musicians as George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and Del Shannon. So I think he was doing okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My number one. You ready? You know what it is Top now. Top of the list. 
You know what Top it is? Top of the list. Because of your shirt and your call. It's uh, it's Creep, of course, by of Radiohead. Course. From Pablo Honey, 1993, their first breakout hit. It had been released in the UK and nothing happened. But it got popular somehow in Israel, and then it spread to some other countries. And then finally, it got played on um, a radio station in San Francisco. It got hugely popular in the US. They re-released it in the UK, and it finally charted. It's a super simple song. If anyone's been in Rock U, they probably played Creep at some point. It's basically just four chords and... Two of the chords are a major and a minor of the same chord. Radiohead was opening on a tour for Belly and PJ Harvey for two years. They played Creep every night and they started to really hate it. Ed O'Brien said, we seem to be living out the same four and a half minutes of our lives over and over again. It was incredibly stultifying. Tom York does not like the song's success he calls the song Crap instead of Creep. He said, it's not bad, but it's not me. In a 1993 interview, he said, it's like it's not our song anymore. It feels like we're doing a cover. The band did not feel like it really represented them at all. Uh, we talked on a recent episode about Johnny Greenwood, the guitarist, trying to ruin the song in recording by hitting those yeah. really heavily distorted guitar chucks at the beginning of the choruses, which just make the choruses explode. I love it. <laughs> the sort of the band, yeah. unfortunately, for him. But the reason why Creep is my number one, instead of somewhere else in the top list is because they wrote a whole other song about it about how much they hated Creep and that's the song <laughs> My Iron Lung which is a much more Radiohead song it's really complex with some really interesting textures and the lyric from My Iron Lung goes or a lyric goes suck suck your teenage thumb toilet trained and dumb when the power runs out we'll just hum this this is our new song just like the last one a total waste of my time My Iron Lung and it's about that feeling of Creep is keeping them alive it's making them a ton of money but they're way down they can't yeah. escape from it and that's what makes it my number one I just taught a Rock U band a, did a great performance of My Iron Lung last year man is that a Radiohead song <laughs> I love Creep though you can't get away from a just a simple chord progression and a beautiful melody why Why would they not just be happy with that I'm very happy with it but Radiohead by Creep well, or sorry Creep by Radiohead my number one song some people don't like the song that they wrote I guess so that's why we can do an episode <laughs> like my number one. What is your number one? Which is Shiny Happy People by <laughs> R.E.M. I don't think a band hates their own song more than R.E.M. <laughs> hates Shiny Happy People. Michael Stipe, the lead singer, has criticized the popular song's lack of depth, saying, quote, it's a fruity pop song written for children, end quote. He claimed in 2016 that if there was one song that was sent into outer space to represent R.E.M. for the rest of time, I would not want it to be Shiny Happy People. <laughs> Even though it's a top 10 hit, the band's last top 10 hit, it gets tons of criticism for being too saccharine and being too much of a departure from the rest of the band's catalog. And even though Stand was the same type of bubblegum pop song as Shiny Happy People, it doesn't have as much sugar to it, I mm -hmm. guess. And that's probably why it doesn't get the vitriol that Shiny Happy People does. The band played this song live only one time. What? On Saturday Night Live in 1991. That's crazy. You got to remember, this was a top 10 hit for them. And when they put together their greatest hits compilation album, In Time... Every R.E.M. single from Green to 2001's Reveal made an appearance on the record, all mm. except one, wow. Shiny Happy People. Wow. <laughs> Some major shade That's there. my number one. <laughs> yeah. Talk about really hating a song you wrote and recorded and put out and was successful. <laughs> 
R.E.M. did that. All right, man, what are your honorable mentions? Because I'm sure you probably got a few. I do have a few, but, you know, honestly, they all fit more or less the same pattern. There's nothing really exciting about the stories, just either rivalries or trapped by their success or, you know, didn't feel like that people understood what they were really going for. One of them is Wonderwall. And anytime something goes bad in Oasis, you can always blame the tension between Liam and uh, Noel I ran by a flock of seagulls where I think he felt trapped by the lead singer was more his hair than the song. Um, <laughs> uh, Pete Townsend said he hated pinball wizard. I had stairway to heaven on my honorable mentions list. I've got a few others here, but nothing that really jumps out at me. The only uh, last one I'll mention is the do, 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 da, 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 da by the police where yeah. sting was intentionally mocking the inanity of lyrics and just created another inane song. And people just thought it was inane instead of satirical, but that's more of a yeah. misunderstood song. And I'm, I'm going to save that for if we ever do a future episode Okay, on that topic. What are yours? So I had smells like teen spirit. Mm-hmm. Big Me by the Foo Fighters because mm. of the video with the Mentos thing. They they weren't too fired up about being a Mentos ad. <laughs> For not being played very often, there's, there's a couple of songs that are just really tough to do. It's A Long Way to the Top by ACDC that mm. we've talked about before because right. you have to tune everything to the bagpipe drone note. Right. And so that's why they didn't play it live very much when Bon Scott was alive. Exactly. In deference yeah, to Bon Yeah, and in bon deference Scott to too. Bon Scott, they don't yeah. play it anymore. Minus Human by Metallica was only played at boarding sessions and maybe one or two other shows that they did with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. And then the latest one that stopped being played that I know of is uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Mm. Pat Benatar. And she quit playing the song because that's yeah, she didn't want to glorify, even though it's yeah. it's a play on words, she did not want to glorify gun violence anymore. So mm. she will never play that song in concert again. Interesting. Yeah. If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, check out the Spotify playlist that we've got in the show notes to hear them all. All right, kids, we're back. And we've brought this subject up before about this guy named Alan Lomax, who is an ethnomusicologist. That was a word I learned when looking Mm. up some stuff for this segment. (laughs) And he did a lot of research on American music what people were playing in many, many different genres in many, many different places in America. Matt's done his research and knows <laughs> a lot about Alan Lomax, so I'm going to let you run with this for a little bit, and maybe I'll throw a few things in at the end. Okay. Let's talk about Alan Lomax. Yeah, so Alan Lomax is kind of a figure that he's mostly in the shadows. I don't think a lot of people know about him, but so much of rock and roll would be different if he hadn't done his work. Alan Lomax is who introduced much of the American listening public to artists like Robert Johnson, who we've talked a lot about, Lead Belly, who we've talked a little bit about, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Sunhouse, Jelly Roll Morton, Muddy Waters. Some of them, Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters in particular, were recorded for the first time by Alan Lomax. They weren't known necessarily yet. It's a little bit of a prodigy. Seems like he was quite motivated. He graduated high school at 15 and he went started college. I think he went to Harvard. I want to say that. But in any way, he, in any case, he got pneumonia at age 17, came home, took a break and started working for his dad, who was a music folklorist. His dad was a professor at the University of Texas. It, exactly. And a, a researcher. Alan actually started at the University of Texas and he transferred mm-hmm. to Harvard as a sophomore 
And I don't know exactly what it was. Maybe it was because he got sick. He ended up coming back home and right. re-enrolling at the University of Texas. And then he started working with his dad. Right. It's because so, of his pneumonia. Yeah. That's why he came back. Yeah. The influence of these recordings has been enormous. They all, first of all, they're all in the Library of Congress. He actually got a mm-hmm. Library of Con- Congress Living Legend Award in 2000. Also got the National Medal of the Arts in 1986 and an honorary doctorate from Tulane in 2001. He's a pretty important guy. Many folk music traditions we only have recordings of because of him. And many of them have had a great deal of influence on rock music. Super important. Something else I really like about him in terms of his influence is uh, Carl Sagan picked him to choose the music that went on the golden disc that the Voyager spacecraft carried out into the solar system and is now out beyond the solar system. Wow, I did not know that. That's awesome. Here are some things he put on that disc. Blind Willie Johnson, Louis Armstrong, Chuck Berry, Andean Panpipes, Navajo Chants, Azerbaijani Music, Sicilian Sulfur Miner's Lament, it's a style of music, polyphonic vocal music from the Muti Pygmies of Zaire, music from the Georgians of the Caucasus, a shepherdess song from Bulgaria, in addition to Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Sagan said it was Lomax who, quote, was a persistent and vigorous advocate for including ethnic music even at the expense of Western classical music. He brought pieces so compelling and beautiful that we gave into his suggestions more often than I would have thought possible. <laughs> there was, for example, no room for Debussy among our selections because Azerbaijanis play bagpipe-sounding instruments called the Balaban, and Peruvians play panpipes and such exquisite pieces had been recorded by uh, ethnomusicologists known to Lomax. So really changed the way in a lot of ways that we listen to music, but in particular discovering so many and diffusing so many important influences in rock. He's a major figure that really most people just don't know about at all. I only have one more thing to say about him, but maybe I should give you a chance to share some of your stuff. And then if there's, if you don't hit mine, I'll grab it at the end. Being the Texan that I am, Mm. his dad actually started cataloging of folk music and cowboy music Mm. when he was a young man. So his dad's name is John Lomax. He recorded thousands of songs that were country songs. Like, I didn't write any of them down, but there are a number of country cowboy songs that we all know only because John Lomax hung out with these guys that were literally taking their guitars on the range and wrote down the Mm -hmm. words and wrote down the chords to the songs and actually could turn around and play them again. He didn't have anything to record them on, but he wrote them down. His father in Texas is a huge music historian, and it's a very Texan thing. But they both started out doing the recording of native music. They went and recorded people like, you said, Robert Johnson, protest singer Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, Burl Ives. (laughs) Who, you know, how do you find Burl Ives? You go find where he is and go record him. Scottish Gaelic singer Flora McNeil. And like you said, Lead Belly and Muddy Waters. Neither of them would have been discovered had it not been for the Lomaxes. Muddy Waters actually said, well, he didn't say, but it's theorized that when Lomax was recording him, that that was a motivation that he needed to leave his farm job in Mississippi to pursue a career as a blues musician in Memphis and then Mm -hmm. later on in Chicago. I was searching around on YouTube and I found a 1991 interview that the journalist Charles Corral 
the TV journalist, had with Alan Lomax. And Alan Lomax said that the problem with rock and roll is that, quote, they've run out of tunes. They sing the same two or three tunes all the time. And I have 5,000 tunes that they ought to be using, period. (laughs) And he was referring to the music that he and his father had compiled in the Library of Congress. And that stuff's free to go get. It's part of the archive. You can go pull it up. I don't know if you can go on their website and pull it up or not, but you can definitely go to the Library of Congress, pull it out and listen to it. I think that's a huge untapped resource that the musical world, if you're into creativity and you want to write songs and you want to find something that's new and different, go pull some of that stuff. Because, man, they went all over the place and recorded so many different things. Cajun music, Appalachian music that's just totally different. If you pull up any of the videos that you pull up about Alan Lomax on YouTube, they're all about different kinds of stuff that they went out and found. And the stories about them just pulling over on the side of the road when they saw somebody with an instrument and recording them. And it was You know, who's the next person that we see? Or, hey, who else do you play with? Word of mouth and driving around with 500 pounds of recording equipment in the back of their car in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Just amazing. This guy is so huge in music and he's hardly ever talked about. Yeah, just one other footnote. He ended up spending much of the 50s in London due to the Red Scare. He got on a blacklist somehow, uh, was suspected of being a communist and had to leave the country for almost 10 years. So sad episode in American history. That's true. But the catalog that he's got at the Library of Congress, that's an amazing amount of work for one person's lifetime. Definitely. We wanted to tell the listeners about a new idea we've got for a segment. We need a name for it, too. You can help us out with that. We want you to write in with your situations. And Seth and I are each going to propose what we think is the perfect musical message to send, the right song for the situation. You want to quit your job? You want to propose marriage? You achieved a beatdown of your best friend in a tennis match or a golf game or something like that? You write to us. (laughs) Write to us at podcast at rock-u.fr. And Seth and I will each come up with the perfect song that you can use to make your point. Whatever situation you got, I think we can find a song for it. So I know we can. Let us know what you got. All right, kids, we're back, and it's time for 60 Seconds of Intellectual Insanity. It's the one-minute matchup. Trademark Seth Inkley. What are we doing today? <laughs> well, you had the idea that we should we should debate on the question, are you a sellout if you allow your music to be used in commercials? So I'm ready to go. Okay. You're ready to go. Well, then I need to get the You should. You can go first. Why don't you go first this time? And be ready for you to go. Why don't, why don't you go first this time? I went first well, last time. Well, because I got the stopwatch uh, ready so for I. you. Look, look at that. It's look like an old-fashioned quick contest here. <laughs> Fastest stopwatch in, yeah. the, in the internet. <laughs> there we go. All right, you ready? Your minute starts in three, <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. two, one, go. All right. Uh, Okay, so back in the 80s and 90s, I might have said that you were a sellout if you used your music in commercials because, you know, I guess I didn't really see it as pure art or because as early adopters, the fans weren't simply in a small group of people in the know about your favorite band or artist anymore. And thus that band or artist lost their allure. You know, I liked them before they were cool. But I think my view is totally different now. Commercials are one of the better ways to get your songs out to the masses and to get paid for your art via the license to use it. 
And even older songs are getting more streams and downloads when they're put into current commercials. And not only that, sometimes commercials are a great way to get introduced to new music or music that's new to you, at least. And uh, one example for that for me is there's a really good song that I like called Suit by a band called Boom Bat Pow that I found a number of years ago in a Diet Coke commercial. <laughs> so that's a minute one. There you go. <laughs> All right. Now I just got to get it to where you can see it. Okay. Here I we go. Your I can't minute actually see it. There. Starts. Oh, okay. Go. You're good. There we go. Your minute starts now. I, I don't even really get the question. Of course you're not a sellout. Musicians got to eat. <laughs> Most of these people are working for a living, and you know <laughs> this is how you make money. If you're U2 and you use your, your music in a commercial, okay, you really don't need the money. But you might, as you said, you might have another good reason. You might like the, the, uh, the artistic elements of the commercial. It could be a director. A lot of good directors make commercials. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what musicians do, right? They make music, and they hope to get paid for it. And this idea exists that they shouldn't get paid for it. This is why you got a lot of starving musicians who stop being musicians and start being bank tellers. And I don't like that. I think, of course, musicians should get paid for their music, and I don't think they're selling out if they... Um, if they use their music in commercials. Um, you gave an example of uh, it being introduced to a new song. I used Gegita's song. Um, uh, oh, my goodness, what's the name of the song? I'm costing myself time here. Whoever You Are, I think it's called, uh, which I got from a BMW commercial. One minute, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the name of that song? Yeah. All I want to do is to thank you, even though I don't know who you are. You let me change lanes when I was driving in my car. I think it's called Whoever You Are. And I got it from a BMW commercial, and what, was, what episode was okay. that? Funny songs? I don't think so. Oh. I'll figure it out. It doesn't matter. I don't know. We can let the listeners figure it out. Yeah, that's right. We'll give you a bonus. We will send you a free commercial. <laughs> <laughs> So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? <laughs> Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Extra credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you with support from our partners at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for all music production in Paris. Everything from the composition to the creative side, to the recording and engineering, to the mixing and mastering, to the distribution and publication and publicity. Check them out at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And of course, you will hear lots of Rock You musicians on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast, is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinkley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock U is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time.